I appreciate the chance to be here. And yep, I've been happily married for about 12 years, and I figure out a 46, that's pretty good. <laughs> kind of the way I look at it. <clears throat> I had no idea that Brother Loftmiller could lead singing. You know, he comes from up our way, of course. You know, his, where there is a plaque outside the nursery at the Grant Street you know, Church building that's honoring his mom because she kept the nursery for 20-something years straight, pretty much every Sunday. You know, Will Sperling back there, she kept him when he was a baby in that nursery and a bunch of other kids. And, uh, but, you know, I, seeing him lead and singing remind me, and I hope you don't, I don't figure you got this problem. I figure Chuck and whoever your song leaders are probably get along pretty well, but, you know, seeing him lead and singing got me there. I heard about song leader and preacher, and they just didn't get along. They just didn't get along at all. I don't know what the problem was. Somebody irritated somebody. Preacher got up, for instance, and he, he had a really good sermon on giving. Song that got up and led, Jesus paid it all. He had a great sermon then. He preached a sermon on commitment, how that we got to get up and get out and get working for the Lord. Song that got up and led, I shall not be moved. He had a powerful sermon on gossip. We need to stop that. And the song that got up and led, I love to tell the story. Well, this is really beginning to get to the preacher, you know. And so he had a really powerful sermon on alcohol. And man, he said, I would like to take all the whiskey in town. I want to take all the wine and all the beer in town and throw it in the river. And the song that got up and led, shall we gather at the river. So that just... <laughs> That really got to him, and so he talked to the elders, and he said, fellas, I, I don't know. He said, you know, I've got an offer from another church recently, and I'm serious. So he got up and let the congregation know. He said, you know, I, I had an offer, you know, brethren, from somewhere, and I don't know if I ought to take it. I'm, I'm thinking about it, but I don't know what I need to do. The song that I got up and let, oh, why not tonight? So he said, that's it. I'm done. So the next Sunday, he, he, he accepted the job at the other congregation, and he got up and he told the folks, he said, brethren, I'm, I'm sorry. I just can't do this anymore. I believe that Jesus wants me to go over here to this other congregation and the song that I got up and led, what a friend we have in Jesus. So anyway, hopefully your song leader and your preacher have a little bit better relationship than that. And, uh, you know, I, was, I, I asked Chuck, I talked to him this earlier today. I was, on my, I was on the road and he was on the way to Mississippi, apparently preaching in Hattiesburg, I believe is what he told me. But anyway, and... Uh, so he told me kind of the order of things and just preach till I'm through and then we're done. And I said, well, what happens if I finish early? He said, I don't think anybody will care. You know, but, and that's probably true. It's like the little boy, you know, he took his neighbor, the little friend of his in, in the neighborhood that had never been to church. And this little boy took his friend to church. And so song leader got up, blew on that pitch pipe, set it down, and they started singing. And the little neighbor boy poked his friend and said, what, what does that mean? And the little boy said, well, that... He, he reads in that book, and it tells him what note, and he can blow that note so he can hear. He knows where to start the song. Oh, oh, okay. Well, then they had the Lord's Supper, and the little neighbor boy punched him and said, what does this mean? And the little boy tried to tell him as quietly as he could, well, the grape juice represents the Lord's blood. The crackers represent his body, and it reminds us that he died for us on Calvary and that we have forgiveness of sin. Through. Oh, 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 okay. Well, then the preacher got up, took his watch off, set it on the pulpit, and the little boy said, what does that mean? And the little other little fellow said, that don't mean nothing. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, we'll just go till we get through, and, you know, it's like I was telling, I was asking somebody the other day, I, in fact, Sunday night, I had a first principle sermon, which 
I try not to do a lot of those. You got to do, you need to do some every now and then, but it was just real simple. And I said, you know, I know some people probably won't like it because they think it's too simple. And whoever I was talking to said, is it short? I said, I think so. I said, they'll love it. And it was, and I didn't have any complaints. But anyway, with, I was told that what I'm supposed to talk about is how to help overcome anxiety and stress. I don't know exactly, I don't recall exactly what the theme perhaps of the whole summer is, but anyway, that's what I was told. And so that's what I thought we'd try to do. And it brought up a, a lesson that I'd done in years past. You know how we preachers do this summer series, don't you? You give us a topic or you give us a text. We put that topic at the head of a sermon we've already done and pretend like we put it together for you. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is. So, and the thing is, I'm at least honest enough to tell you that. You know, but anyway, years ago, when I was in Memphis preaching at the, Grand, at the Great Oaks congregation in Memphis, one Tuesday morning, if I think it was a Tuesday, I pulled out of the house and backed out of the driveway, and I noticed as I was backing out of the driveway, there was like a sandwich bag. You know, just a little clear Ziploc sandwich bag with some sort of business card in it. And I thought, well, I don't have time. I'm not stopping to pick it up. That afternoon, when I get back home, that bag is still laying right where it was when I pulled out. And I'm like, how in the world? Why didn't it blow away? You know, how did that thing just sit there? And when I got out of the car and I went and picked it up, there was a rock. They had put a rock in there with the card so that when they chunked those things out in, it was for a lawn service. And when they chunked those out on the driveways, they would stay there because the rock kept the wind from blowing it away. And, you know, being a preacher, I thought there has got to be a sermon in that somewhere. So you can decide here in a little bit if there was or not. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 47, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. In Psalm 1846, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. You may recall that one from a song. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You know, we, like that little sandwich bag <clears throat> in my driveway that day, <clears throat> excuse me, we face the winds of life the storms that come along, things that blow, stress, anxiety, immorality, compromise, etc., etc., etc. What keeps us as children of God from getting blown away? How can we maintain? In fact, I, th I don't know if there's no way that Brother Lofmiller had any idea. I don't think he had a clue what I was preaching on, but the song he led was perfect. Does your anchor hold? That's basically exactly what I'm talking about. What keeps us anchored? What keeps us where we need to be? You know, when I become a child of God, when through faith that comes by the word of God, Romans 10, 17, I repent of my sins and convert to God, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, and then I'm willing to confess with the mouth, you know, that, that unto, I believe with the heart and confess with the mouth unto salvation, Romans 10, 10, and then... I'm buried with Christ in baptism, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should rise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3, and 4. <clears throat> when that happens, God, Colossians 2, 12, operates or works on my soul. That's why even though the preacher or whoever's doing the baptizing literally helps lift me up out of the water, but it's God that has created right there at that instant a brand new person. 
No, I still look the same. I still have all, but I have a new life in Christ. I am a spiritual creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Old things passed away. All things become new. So at that point, I am ushered through that narrow gate that Jesus talked about. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7? There's a narrow gate that opens to a difficult way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. There's a wide gate that leads to a broad way that leads to destruction, and there's a lot that go in there. So when I become a child of God, when I am baptized into Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, when I, by faith, get the grace that saves me, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and faith, of course, is an obedient lifestyle. If we study Scripture, we all understand that. Hebrews 11 is a classic example. But the point being, at that point, I am ushered through that narrow gate and put on that difficult way that leads to eternal life. Now, what keeps me on that way? How do I stay on that way? Perfection? No. No, because if I have to be perfect, well, let's just all go home, eat, drink, and be merry, and die and be done with it, because there's no hope if I have to be perfect. That is sinlessly perfect. So how do I stay? How do I overcome the winds of this life? And man, we live, you know, at Mel Brooks, was it, I don't know how many years ago he did that movie, High Anxiety or whatever. Man, we, I mean, we live in a world of just nothing but stress. A lot of it can be attributed to our culture. In fact, probably all of it, for the most part. Because we keep trying to put round pegs in square holes and square pegs in round holes. You know, we're telling a woman she can be a, mom, a dad and a mom. We're telling a man he can be a mom and a dad. And it never works. It never has worked. And it never will work. And we have people trying to be something for which they were not created. And as a result, stress is at an all-time high. In fact, you know, you remember the old cigarette commercials, you come a long way, baby. Well, you know, there was this commercial I used to hear quite often that talked about how that heart disease is now one of the leading killers of women. It used to be just men. Now it's women. Well, no wonder. We are trying to tell women to be men. You know, and, it, it just, and there's no, women are stronger than men. There's no question about that. Emotionally, I have no doubt. You get a sick child, dad can't handle it. Mom can sit there for days if she needs to. Dad has to go off in a room and cry somewhere. Mama has the strength to handle it. You know, but women are finely tuned and delicately made. They're not made to be men, and men are not made to be women. And so our society is just, it's, it's, stress is running rampant. I mean, a whole bunch of hospital rooms are occupied by folks that are genuinely sick. Don't get me wrong. Heart disease and other things, but it was brought about to a great extent simply by stress and anxiety. And, you know, we as Christians have to deal with that. We're not of the world, but we live in the world. And Jesus never said, you become a Christian, you become a follower of mine, and you'll be immune from all the problems of life. No, he never said that at all. In fact, what he said was, you become a follower of mine, and it may add some problems to your life, like people losing your family, losing your land, losing this and that and the other, but you'll be blessed in the long run. But the truth is, I can have peace if I'm a child of God, because Jesus said so. He told his apostles, my peace I give you, not the peace of the world, but mine. And he didn't say that means you're not going to have problems. No, in fact, from what we understand from tradition, all the apostles, except perhaps for John, died a premature, violent death at the hands of other people because of their faith. But Jesus said, you can have peace. Well, they didn't have an absence of conflict. I can tell you that they had all kinds of conflict. So did Jesus. But you can have peace. It's a peace that the world, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, cannot understand. 
how do I have that? What can help me to have that kind of settled heart and mind so that when the winds of anxiety and stress blow through my life and my family, I can continue to function, I can continue to smile. I'm going to have bad days. There's going to be days where the sun doesn't shine in my heart. That happens to everybody, but in the long run, I can know that my joy is full because my joy is connected to God and there's nothing out here that can change that unless I let it. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. So what's, what's the rock? You could probably come up with several things, but what I want to talk about is prayer. And not just any kind of prayer, but believing prayer. Believing prayer is an anchor in the sea of anxiety, in the sea of life in which you and I live. It, believing prayer basically can be defined very simply as praying and believing with all my heart that God's going to answer. See, back even in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 20, he heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. I need to do the same. If the children of Israel, under the Mosaic dispensation, could put their trust in God, surely in the covenant of Christ, in these last days, by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the grace extended to me, I can put my trust in him. So what kind of prayer life does that need? I need to pray with a confidence that God hears me, that he hears me. And David is a classic example of that. You read the Psalms, and there's 150 of them. David wrote probably 75. Moses wrote one. Uh, several different people wrote them, but David wrote at least half of them. And when you read most of David's Psalms, they're, they're either songs or prayers. That's pretty much what they are. And in Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17, as for me, David wrote, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. He didn't say might, he said shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. David had no doubt that God would hear, even like with the 51st Psalm, when Nathan had come to him and let him know that he was the man that had taken Bathsheba and had Uriah put to death, even then he knew that God would hear. <clears throat> Psalm 34, verses 15 through 17, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil in, in <clears throat> excuse me, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. God listens when his children pray. Now, David had a boldness and a confidence, and you can read it throughout the Psalms. I mean, he just, there was no doubt. He went to God and he said, here's what I need. Give it to me, please. He was respectful, but he was bold in his approach. Folks, we have a greater high priest than David ever had. David lived under the Mosaic law when a human was the high priest. We live under the dispensation of the law of Christ when Jesus Christ himself is our high priest. We ought to have at least as much confidence and boldness as David did in our prayer lives. You remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We don't have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Therefore, since we have that high priest, 
let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in time of need. That's 15 and 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. I need to understand that God Almighty listens. And this is what's amazing when you think about it, really. We're talking about God. This is the being who said, let there be light, and pow, there was light. You know, and then let's separate the sky from the sky, the firmament, and have it, and there it was. Let's separate the waters and cause dry land to appear and, and trees and all matters of, matter of vegetation, and boom, there it was. Let's put birds in the air and fish in the water, and there they were. Just at his voice, there they were. And then let's create all the land-walking, air-breathing animals, and then finally let's take a bunch of dirt and create man. So the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, and it was found that Adam had to figure it out. God already knew it. He wasn't built to be alone, and men are not built to be alone today either. And so God said, let me make a helper that's suitable for him. That's where women came from. You know, he took that from his rib, you know. It's like the little boy went to his mom and said, Mom, I think I'm having a wife. And she said, what are you talking about? He said, my side's hurting. You know, so, you know, that's, I mean, that he took that rib and he formed Eve. And she was called Eve because she was the mother of all living. And that's what God intended then. You know, and uh, my sermon's not on that, but it wasn't Adam and Steve. It was Adam and Eve, and it never will be anything else. And that's what God intended, and that's what God intends now. We love everyone. God loves everyone. But there are lifestyles that God cannot abide, nor can the church that belongs to the Son of God, nor can Christians. We can love people, and we try to love them out of sin and into the Lord's love, into the Lord's church. But we cannot compromise the truth. We just don't have to be ugly about it. But the fact is that God, that God, that spoke it all into existence. And I was talking to somebody one time, and they said, I can't believe that we're the only, you know, the only intelligent life in the universe. I mean, we're learning more and more. This universe is huge. It's huge. You know, perhaps billions of light years. Across. We don't even know. It may be infinite. We don't even know how big it is. Seriously, why would God go to all that trouble if the only intelligent life is on the third rock from the sun in the Milky Way in our solar system? And my response is, what trouble? He's God. He just said, yeah, it didn't look like I got trouble to me. He said, throw it out there, and there it was. I don't care how big it is. It wasn't in trouble for God. Nothing's in trouble for God. Jesus said, nothing's impossible with God. A lot of things are impossible with men alone, but nothing is impossible with God. God didn't go to trouble. There's no such thing as God having trouble. He's God. You know, he put it all there, but that God, who created the millions of worlds and stars that our fantastic technology is learning more and more about, albeit perhaps a little sideways, but learning more and more about that same God, who, according to the Hebrew writer, upholds the whole creation by the power of his word when one of his children bows their head in hurt or in thankfulness and gratitude maybe with tears in your eyes, not even knowing exactly what to say, and you say, Father, whatever he's doing, he bends over, he gives you his ear, and he hangs on every word you have to say. That's God, and that's you, if you're his child. That's what God does. 
He hears every word you pray, every time. How does he do it? I don't know. But at that moment, you are the most important thing in the universe as far as he's concerned. He's hanging on every word you have to say. And that's what God does for us. And I need to pray knowing he's going to do that. And then I need to pray with confidence that not only will he hear, but that he will answer. See, faith in God involves trusting him to care enough about me and my petitions to respond to them. Again, we go back to the book of Psalms, this time 145, verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him, and he also will hear their cry and save them. The ninth Psalm, verse 10, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And then you're more familiar with Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and what will happen? He will direct your path. God answers. Now, his answer may not always be what I want. Sometimes no is the answer. may not be what I'm looking for, but sometimes that's the best answer. You heard about that young couple, didn't you? He said, will you marry me? She said, no, and they both lived happily ever after. That needs to happen more often, probably. You know, no is not necessarily a bad answer all the time. It's not all the time. God will answer. I need to believe that somehow, at some point, in some way, that if, in fact, I'm asking according to his will, that he will grant what I need. Matthew 21, 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And if you're a child of God and you've been a child of God for any period of time, you already know what I'm talking about. Your confidence that God answers is bolstered by past experience. If you've been a child of God for a number of years, you have prayed in the past, and you may not have known right at the moment, but looking back now, you can see those answers, can't you? You look back on the timeline of your life and it's like, wow. You know, at that moment, I thought that was the worst thing in the world. But now I see how God brought me through that and I learned a huge lesson that I needed to learn and I'm better for it. You know, we may not have caught it at the time, but we know that God answers prayer. I'm not talking about miracles, but we do know from Romans 8 that he works out all things for our good and that we are the benefit of his providence. I don't know how all that works. You know, we also know from that same chapter that the Holy Spirit that dwells in us makes, you know, intercession to God for us. So what that means is when I pray, I've got, I'm praying through the Son to the Father and the Holy Spirit's right there. The whole Godhead is interested when I pray as a child of God. That is amazing. You know, I need to, you know, for instance, I remember... You know, just to give you an example out of my life. I started preaching, actually, a little bit more than 35 years ago. Well, I went to Freed Hardeman when I got out of high school, because that's just what you do. You know, if you grew up in my house, that's my brother went there, and, you know, and he took that three-year preacher training thing, and he got out in the spring of 72, and I started in the fall of 72, and I was in the first four-year class that they had, you know, got out in 76, and I majored in Bible. But I didn't preach. Man, preaching scared me to death. I couldn't imagine being able to preach. The only, I'm probably the only Bible major in the history of Freed Hardeman University that the only sermon I preached the whole four years I was there was in Tom Holland's, you know, preparation delivery of sermons class. 
And I preached that because I had to, to get out of a class. It scared me to death. And so I'd been out of school for about seven years. Well, about, yeah, something like that. Well, actually about six years. And I was working at a, uh, at that point in time, I was working for Chatham Chemicals in their data processing department. I was a programmer analyst and, you know, was getting ready to go back to school and get a two-year computer science degree and so I could get promoted and all that stuff. And, you know, and I got a call from a guy I'd never heard of. And he said, I know your dad, and I know he preaches, and I think your brother's a preacher, isn't he? And I said, yes. He said, have you ever preached? Well, at that point in time, I had preached one sermon. Because there's a period in my life many, 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 many years ago where I got away from everything that mattered and lived the prodigal son's life for a while. And I came back, and they wanted me to share at my home congregation why I came back. And so that's the only sermon I had preached, which wasn't really a sermon. It just telling my own story. And so I said, well, I preached one. He said, well, we got a little congregation up in, up in Calhoun, Tennessee, which is about 65 miles from where I was living in Ringgold, Georgia at the time. And he said, we meet every Sunday at 3 o'clock. There's a little building there. And he said, we just hate people to think it's closed down. So there's about five families that come over after their regular church service at their home congregation. We meet at 3 and have a service. Would you come up next Sunday and preach for us? I said, well, I reckon. So... I put together a sermon, Noah, a man of God. I had an introduction, I think it's three or four points and a conclusion. We go to church that Sunday morning, go grab a hamburger or whatever, and here we go, heading up an hour or so up the interstate toward Knoxville to a little Calhoun. And if you've ever been in East Tennessee, you know where Calhoun is. Because when you get to where the stink is so bad from the paper mill that you can't stand it, that's Calhoun. Or better yet, when you cross the Hiawassee River and the fog is so bad there's a 75-car pileup, that's Calhoun. That's where it is, right there. Bowwater paper mill. Whoo, it was rough. But anyway, point is, so I went up there. On the way up, my wife Janice said, well, what you preaching on? I, I went through my whole sermon. Took five minutes. She said, that's it? I said, man, that's it. She said, oh, boy. When I got there, I got up in that little old pulpit. It took me a half an hour to preach that sermon, and I knew right then, I'm a preacher, because it just took me 30 minutes to say what anybody else could say in five. So I thought, you must be a preacher. So anyway, they met for a minute, and they said, hold on a minute, don't leave yet. They went in a little room, came back, would you come up and preach for us every Sunday afternoon? I said, I reckon. And then that was in June, I think, or June. Then in August, we decided we'd go to a full schedule of services, leave our, you know, I mean, I'm still working full-time, but leave. And so anyway, then it was decided probably June, around June 1 of, in 2003 that I thought maybe I might want to do this full-time. So I talked to the guys up there about it, and we were kind of throwing it around. It had started talking about it in the fall of 02, and, you know, and just kind of trying to figure out if that's what I ought to do. And lo and behold, I went out and bought me a little truck. Four days after I buy the truck, the boss calls me into his office. Boy, there's times I hate to be a supervisor. Have you ever had, you ever had a boss start out with that line? What is that? You know you're in trouble, don't you? Anyway, he said, Alan, we'd love to promote you, but you don't have the degree. You can do the work, but we can't promote you because HR says you got to have the piece of paper, so we're going to have to let you go. I'm like, well, that is just great. Just bought a little old tree. Anyway, and they said, but we're in no hurry. We want you to stay until May 31st, till June 1. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. Well, the vice president over DP was a friend of mine, and uh, so he called me in his office, and he said, what do you want to do? He said, I will get you a job anywhere in town. I know a lot of people. I said, 
I told him, I said, Vernon, I think I'm going to preach. He said, I was hoping you would, because he went and heard that one sermon I had done a year or so before, because I had invited him. So I did. When you have a last name Watkins and you're in East Tennessee, and you just send out a couple of letters saying, I need a little bit of money to start preaching, and they know your dad, and so they say, okay, fine. You know, and so I had the money I thought I needed. It wasn't near enough. But anyway, so I move up there. Well, actually, I was going to move up there, but I owned a house. And there were four, three houses in a row below us that were for sale. One had been sold for about six months. All of them were real estate agents. So our house is the fourth house in a row on our little street for sale. And we need to move up to East Tennessee June 1. We, got one, we, never, we put one ad in the newspaper. We never even got a sign in the front yard. You know, we prayed about it. Young couple called. They were expecting their first child came and looked at the house, called us back a few days later, said, I tell you what, we'll give you what we at, you're asking if you'll pay 2000 in closing costs. We said, you got a deal. And they said, but we want to close by May 31st. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. When we moved, the other three houses were still for sale. Yeah, I don't know, but, you know, that, and I've had other things like that, that just, you know, when we were thinking about leaving Florida and maybe moving to Memphis, a church had, and so here we are in Tampa, Florida, and an elder's wife down there brings us a package. And Janice has been, you know, we had a, as, oh, we had a golf course, pool. we had a nice place. Anyway, she's out there, she's been praying off and on, what do we should do, what should we do, what should we do? She said, God, I know you don't really give signs anymore, but if you, you know, eh. she comes back, and so I get home, and I said, did you see the box? Where did this box in the kitchen come from? She said, well, Mary brought it over, which one of the elders' wives, brought me some stuff in it. I said, did you look at the box? It was from Corky's Barbecue in Memphis, Tennessee. I said, there's your son. But anyway, so we moved to Memphis. But the point is, we all can look back and see answered prayer, can't we? And sometimes the answer was no. Sometimes the answer was yes. And sometimes the answer was not yet, but it'll happen soon. We are, you know, so experience gives us confidence to know that God is listening and that God will answer. You know, I mean, at one point I had to leave Enterprise, and that wasn't my idea, down in South Alabama. Anyway, that's a whole other story, but I had to tell the two, our girls were little back then. So I said, well, girls, we're going on an adventure of faith. They said, what does that mean? I said, well, we're going to have to leave Enterprise. And I said, that's the adventure. She said, well, they said, well, where are you going? I said, there's the faith part. We don't know yet. You know, so, but, the, but, you know, but it all worked out. Mark eleven twenty four. 24, therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is as a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Pray, believing he will answer. And then finally, I need to continue to pray even when it seems like God isn't answering. Because God's timetable is not always my timetable. You know, Jesus told his apostles, you know, he gave them a parable about the judge and the woman and all that, and they, that you should always pray and not faint. Well, that woman had to go to the judge several times, but he finally granted her request. He didn't do it on her timetable, he did it on his, but he did it. And he said, how much more will God who loves you, you know, do what you ask? But it's not always on my timetable. A faithful man continues in prayer 
until he gets the answer. In 1 Kings 18, 42 through 44, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, go now, look toward the sea. You remember this is after the contest with the 450 prophets of Baal. God had sent the fire from heaven. They'd killed the prophets of Baal and it hadn't rained for three and a half years because Elijah had prayed that it wouldn't rain and it hadn't rained for three and a half years. Now he's going to pray that it rains. And so he bows down and he prays and he tells, he tells uh, his servant, go look. And he comes back and says, there's nothing. Seven times. Elijah said, go look, go again. Not, there's nothing, there's nothing. And finally then, on the seventh time, when the servant looked, he said, well, there's a cloud. Looks to be about as small as a man's hand rising up out of the sea. So Elijah told him, he said, you go tell Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And old Elijah hitched up his britches, tied that robe around him and outran the horses back to town. And it rained, and it rained, and it rained. But he had to pray seven times. And this is Elijah, a prophet. He had to pray seven times. What if he had quit on five? It would never rain. He didn't quit until he got his answer. I need to learn from that. Sometimes we get frustrated. But we need to just continue to trust that God loves us, and eventually he will answer. Again from the Psalms, this time chapter 88, verses 13 and 14. But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? David had his moments, just like the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. But just remember. When you think that he's not listening, remember Jesus has been there. In Matthew 26, 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then again in verse 42, he went and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then verse 44, so he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words, and yet the cup didn't go away, and Christ had to drink it on Calvary. Three times he asked his father if there's another way. He would be willing to do another way if he could do another way, but God, Father, if I can't, I'll do it your way. God said you can't. He didn't really get his answer was obvious. The answer was this is the way it's got to be. So when I think that God's not listening, just remember, Jesus has been there, and he understands. Pray with confidence that God will hear. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. Pray with confidence that he will answer. 1 John 3, verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And then keep praying even when it seems like God isn't there. From what I've read in years past in one of the concentration camps in Germany, in Eastern Europe or Western Europe, whatever, as the allies were liberating one of the concentration camps, they found on a wall of one of the, the cells under a 
drawing of a crude star of David, they found these words. I believe in the sun, even when it does not shine. I believe in God, even when he is silent. I need to have that kind of faith. I may not always get the answer when or the way or the right of the answer I want, but know God's there. He loves you. He loves us. And as long as I'm doing what he says, regardless of what happens with that prayer, he will take care of me. No question. He hears. He will answer. Hebrews 10, 22 and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God has the power to help us overcome. I don't care if it's stress, if it's anxiety, if it's temptation, if it's sin, whatever it is, God has the power to help us overcome. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Remember, Scripture tells us, he who is in the child of God is more powerful than he who is in the children of the world. It doesn't look that way a lot of times. I fully understand that, but it's true. And the fact is, as Jesus told his apostles one day, don't be afraid of him who can destroy your body. Rather, have a healthy respect, fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I need to recognize no one can separate me from the love of God. Oh, they can take my physical life, but they can't take my spiritual life. Nobody can. Not Satan, not anybody can. Yes, we live in a frustrating time. Yes, we live in a time when, when tensions are high and anxiety is at a, I don't know if there's such thing as a record level or not. But folks, we're Christians. Again, we're in the world, but I promise you, you live the Christian life, you are living a level of life that is above a great deal of the fray that takes place down there in the mundane issues that non-Christian people deal with. Oh, we have to work with them, I know that. We have to deal with some of those same things. But we have a God in heaven who has the power to lift us spiritually above all of that, above all of that. And as long as I have his love in my life and I love him, there's really nothing to fear. And fear is the primary source of stress and anxiety. And fear is nothing more to a great extent than a lack of faith. Oh, I get scared. Man, I lock my doors. I triple check, double check, quadruple check. I wake up in the middle of the night and I don't go, well, I, lie. I still go check the door again. I mean, I do that. That's just the crazy world we live in, but I can still go back to sleep when I lay down. You know, I mean, God didn't say be ignorant. He just said, in fact, it should be wise as serpents or harmless as doves. Realize the world in which we live, but understand that God lifts us above so much of that. And even if somehow that world and its ugliness and its danger strikes and hits us and our family and our loved ones or our friends, God still takes care of everybody that is his child. He has that power. I need to increase my prayers 
which can help increase my faith. Hebrews 11:6, we know that one, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For they that come to him must, not should, ought to, kind of, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The fact is, if I'm a child of God, and I have been for any length of time, then God has earned my respect. He has earned my praise because of the great love he has for me. And if I want to know what that was, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can't get any better than that. I might would give my life for you, but I am not handing you any of my grandkids. I'm sorry. They're not dying for you. I will, but my grandchildren aren't. Maybe one or two of my kids. But no, but, my, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not giving my children or my grandchildren. I'll give you my life. God gave you his only begotten son. He gave him to me and you and everybody. And the sad fact is the vast majority of humanity doesn't care and have no positive response to that unbelievable love that God has shown. But for the child of God, man, I need to praise him, thank him, and ask him for whatever I need in prayer. Psalm 18.3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. And if those enemies are stress, anxiety, or whatever, doesn't matter. Prayer is the anchor that keeps me steady and steadfast in the storms of life, especially those of stress and anxiety. I have no idea what time it is. I probably like the preacher that pulled the watch out and the little kid. Yep, pretty much. You still got four minutes to late. Man, what do we do for four minutes? No, I'm just kidding. I'm done. Thanks. <laughs>